Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast. Taking a look inside your genes. Complex, mysterious, and currently incurable. The challenge for researchers working on neurodegenerative diseases is huge. We'll be finding out how scientists are using new genetic approaches to understand these distressing illnesses. Even though people with motor neuron disease may not be outwardly sick until maybe they're in their 40s, 50s, 60s, there's probably something in many cases which is wrong with their so-called motor neurons from the very beginning. Plus, we find out why claims of a male contraceptive pill are somewhat premature, discuss how a 16th century mummy has revealed the history of hepatitis B, and investigate whether your genes could predispose you to life in orbit. And our gene of the month is the hollow-sounding Tin Man. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast for June 2012 with me, Dr Catardi, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. syndrome is a genetic disease caused by inheriting an extra copy of human chromosome 21. As well as leading to a range of physical and mental problems, new research is also revealing changes in the brains of people with Down syndrome that look similar to the neurodegeneration seen in diseases such as Alzheimer's disease. To find out more, I spoke to Lizzie Fisher, Professor of Neurogenetics at University College London, who's creating mouse models to help figure out what's going on. Now, one of the aspects of Down syndrome uh, that is very interesting to study is that people with Down syndrome get the changes in the brain very, very early on that go with Alzheimer's disease, but they don't get the dementia until a couple of decades or so later at um, a greater propensity, a greater frequency than in the rest of the population, but there's an interesting disconnect between having Down syndrome, why they get particular brain changes and why the dementia occurs perhaps a couple of decades later. So tell me a bit about this mouse model for Down syndrome. What exactly does it involve? How do you model a disease like that? We took um, a human chromosome 21 out of a human cell, just from a normal cell line that's been grown in culture for many years, and we transferred that um, into another type of cell line called an embryonic stem cell line, a mouse embryonic stem cell line. And we can take these cells and inject them into very, very, very early embryos. These are embryos that are so early that they're they're what we call pre-implantation. They wouldn't even have implanted into the uterus yet. Um, We simply take those embryos and using the same techniques that you'd find in a human IVF clinic, we re-implant those into um, recipient mothers, into foster mothers if you like, and then our embryos are born from that and a certain proportion of their cells will carry the human chromosome 21. So what sort of features do you see in these mice? 
So where we've looked, our mouse model does seem to recapitulate um, certain features of Down syndrome. So one example is that we find very characteristic um, changes in learning and memory which appear to be similar to what one would find in people with Down syndrome. So for example, um, people with Down syndrome have certain differences from the rest of us in terms of laying down long-term memories and this appears to be the same in our mice as well. Um, Similarly, um, 40% of babies who are born with Down syndrome have a very characteristic type of heart deficit and we're seeing exactly that same change in our mice as well. And tell me a bit about these changes in the brain that look like Alzheimer's disease. What what sort of thing do you think is going on there? Alzheimer's disease is characterised by particular changes in the brain that are called plaques and tangles and that they're deposits of protein material that you don't find in normal brains. Very, very characteristic of Alzheimer's disease. And in people with Down syndrome, they also have these deposits in the brain, probably rather earlier than the rest of us in the population. So we would like to know why that is, and also what's the connection between those protein deposits and the appearance of dementia some decades later. So are there any other issues with the the brain development or the brain function in these, these Down syndrome model mice that you see? Yes, there's one very interesting um, characteristic that we find, and this is in a structure of the brain called the cerebellum. So this sits at the base of the brain near um, where the brain joins the spine. And this structure is responsible for fine motor control. It does lots of things. It's also involved in what we call motor learning. And it's known um, that in people in Down syndrome, there's a particular set of cells, a particular very characteristic group of cells that don't really develop properly in this structure in the brain. So we've gone back to have a look at our mouse model, and sure enough, exactly the same cells have difficulty developing in our mouse model. So we know, because Down syndrome is a genetic disorder, it arises from having an abnormal number of genes, we know that there must be a gene or genes on chromosome 21 that are responsible for that aspect of Down syndrome. We see exactly the same thing in our mouse, and we can use mouse genetics to get to the individual genes responsible for that feature of the development of the human cerebellum. You're also looking at mouse models of motor neurone disease. Is there anything particularly interesting you've seen in these mice? Well, it's very early days for us with these mice, but in the field generally there's a lot of excitement because human geneticists found some new genes um, that are quite rare, but they are responsible for a, a small proportion of familial forms of motor neurone disease and it looks as if what these genes do is they're involved in um, processing of some of a chemical called RNA and this is the chemical that work that moves between the DNA in the chromosomes and sort of gives the instructions for how to make proteins and it turns out that um, there's a whole area of what we call RNA metabolism Um, which is really the study of what happens to RNA in cells. What does RNA do? Because it turns out to have lots and lots of complex functions. And at least two and possibly more of the genes involved in motor neuron disease actually seem to be acting in RNA metabolism. So the field generally, including us, is now starting to work with mouse models and other models, for example in, um, in fruit flies, to try to work out what's going wrong with RNA metabolism in motor neuron disease.
Have you have you started looking at the mice that you've got now to see if they have these problems? We've started looking at one strain of mouse and we have a, a quite interesting um, finding for us, which is that there's a type of processing of RNA which is called splicing. It's just cutting and pasting bits of RNA together and we think that this is defective in one of our mouse models and so this is something that we're going to follow up in, on in the future. That was Professor Lizzie Fisher from University College London. And now it's time to find out what's going on in the world of genetics research. And joining me this month is science writer Safia Danavi. So what's the first story you've spotted? The first story that has caught my attention is a double in cell led by two groups. The first by Evan Eichler and the second by Frank Poller. And it's basically about what makes us human. They found a gene called SRGAP2, very catchy, which was duplicated three times in humans. And that seems to be what drove the expansion of our brains and led to the evolution of human culture. Because this is, this is a gene that's just been copied a few times in the genome. And that, that does happen when things just slightly go awry when cells multiply. It does, but, you know, you like to think that these small mistakes in evolution may be the difference between blonde hair and and auburn hair, but actually it, you know, it's quite sobering to think that it's the difference between man and mice. Because there's the same protein in mice, but it's just one single amino acid different. I find that incredible that maybe that is the difference between our brains and, and their brains. Absolutely, and it does beg the question, what on earth is this molecule doing in the brain and how is it functioning? But we've had the human genome sequence for quite a few years now. Why, why didn't they spot this first time round? Kat, I think the problem was really they, that they didn't have technology that was sensitive enough to pick up small minute differences anything like that was discarded as a mistake or harmless variation I guess now we have access to high-tech next generation deep sequencing which is you know revealing so much more that it's really beginning to tell us what makes us human and this is information that the first human genome project missed And I I spotted a really nice story. They've looked at the mummy of a 16th century Korean child and managed to not only extract preserved organ tissue from it, from its liver, they have actually managed to sequence hepatitis B virus from this child's liver from 500 years ago. This, This blows my mind. I know. And I actually, reading this, this was a study that was done by um, Israeli and Korean researchers. It was published in Hepatology. I couldn't believe how ancient this virus actually is. So the authors estimate that the the virus has its origin between 3,000 to 100,000 years ago, which is incredible. That's a pretty big margin of error, though. I know, but it's still <laughs> ancient. I mean, the other thing I hadn't realised is what a significant health problem um, hepatitis B was, 400 million carriers worldwide. And I guess what they're hoping is that the sequencing of this very ancient virus might offer some insights as to what makes the virus dangerous and where it might, how it might evolve in the future. The study used a sample from a boy who lived around the 16th century. It's just remarkable that they have access to technology that gives us such an insight into this boy's life. And actually, I really want to know more about the boy. I want to know how he died and how old he was. And it makes me wonder, you know, what his life was like back then. 
So moving from the 16th century to bang up to date modern times, um, there's some research published in PLOS Genetics this month from researchers up in Edinburgh led by Lee Smith that led to headlines all over the place going, male contraceptive pill could be here, blah, blah, blah. But when you actually look at the research, that's really not what they found. Um, What have these researchers been up to? What they've done is they've identified um, a molecule called CATNAL1, which seems to be essential for sperm motility, so their ability to move within the testes as they mature. So I don't really know how this translates into a headline for male contraception, but what I do think it could be really useful is in the future, you know, developing it as a treatment for male infertility, which can often occur as as a result of low um, sperm motility. So this could be really one to watch. I'm never convinced by any of the stories about the male contraceptive pill. They, I don't, know, I don't think I'd trust them, frankly. I think it is really interesting that they found this molecule and, and understood what it does, but I, I don't think it's anywhere close to being something useful for contraception. But starting to understand infertility that could be uh, that could be really important because it is something we don't really understand that much about it is something we don't understand and it's a cause of such distress for couples who are trying to have a baby and and just can't so hopefully you know this might offer some important insight as to what is going wrong where in the cases where infertility is down to low motility in male sperm and uh, and finally moving on to the genetics of bacon you a big bacon sandwich fan um, actually, I have to confess, I'm Muslim, so I've never tried the stuff. But it does smell awfully good. Well, that's interesting, because this is a, a story led um, led by Hiroaki Matsunami in the US, and it's published in PLOS One, about the genetics of why some people like the smell of pork or not. So previously, these guys had discovered that there's a, a receptor, a, a scent receptor, that means that if you have one version of it, you can smell a molecule called androstenone, which is particularly produced by male pigs and, and makes meat smell very piggy, basically. Um, and if you don't have a functional copy of the gene, you can tolerate the scent much more because you can't smell it so much. So the researchers were approached by a Norwegian team because in Europe there's um, currently discussion about whether castration for male pigs should be outlawed because currently male pigs are castrated so that it's easier to sort of keep them and, and farm them. But uncastrated male pigs make a lot of androstenone. They're very smelly, <laughs> piggy animals. So they wanted to find out what would happen if there was actually a genetic impact. And they did a little study that was looking at, at 13 people. 10 were professional smellers and, uh, and three were just, I guess, regular people and found that people who had the copy of the gene that meant they could smell this androstenone, they got a really powerful piggy scent. And I do think it's quite interesting that maybe our tastes and our taste perception may be much more under genetic control than we think. Yeah, I completely agree. And as the mother of a very fussy eater, this is really not great news for me. But I think it's also a really interesting interface between economics and genetics. So obviously this Norwegian this study was commissioned by the Norwegians because it might have very significant commercial applications if castration of male pigs is banned. It might mean that less people like meat and therefore less people will want to eat pork. It's interesting they speculate as well that maybe vegetarians uh, maybe vegetarians are very sensitive to the unpleasant side of the smell of meat. So they're vegetarians for that reason. I do know some people who are really turned off 
the smell of meat and don't eat it. Yeah, and not just vegetarians. It would be really interesting to see where these whether these genes are present in populations that have not eaten pork for centuries and centuries. So Jewish communities, Muslim communities, Buddhist communities. It would be really interesting to see how many copies, if any, of, of this gene are present in, in these people. Uh, it's certainly food for thought. Anyway, thanks very much, Safia. That's Safia Danavi. And now it's time to find out what else has been happening in the world of genetics research with our news roundup. Researchers have finally published a study in the journal Nature showing how so-called bird flu, that's avian H5N1 influenza virus, can become contagious in mammals after heated public debate and a controversial US government recommendation to block publication. The research reveals that only a few amino acid changes are required to convert the bird virus into one that can spread in mammals, with only four changes to the viral hemagglutinin protein needed to make it a significant threat to humans. The researchers, led by Yoshihiro Kawaoka in Wisconsin, believe that publishing their findings is essential to help scientists around the world develop ways to monitor the disease and find effective ways to halt a future pandemic. But others have argued that the information could be hijacked by bioterrorists trying to use flu viruses for nefarious purposes. Genetically inclined ketchup fans can rejoice this month because the whole genome of the tomato, specifically the Heinz 1706 variety, has finally been sequenced and is published in the journal Nature. Known to biologists as Solanum lycopersicum, the tomato's genome holds clues to how the plants can be bred to have improved yields and disease or drought resistance, as well as better taste and colour. The researchers from the International Tomato Genomics Consortium discovered that the plant has around 35,000 genes distributed across 12 chromosomes. Tomatoes are related to other fleshy fruits such as strawberries, apples, melons and bananas, so the information from their genomes could be useful for understanding more about some of the other juicy inhabitants of our fruit bowls. US and German researchers have managed to turn back the clock on blood stem cells, making them effectively younger, according to new research in the journal Cell Stem Cell from a team led by Dr Hartmut Geiger. The research overturns previous ideas suggesting that ageing of these cells, also known as hematopoietic stem cells, was genetically pre-programmed and unchangeable. As we age, these stem cells become less effective at regenerating our blood and immune cells, helping to explain why older people are more susceptible to infections and other illnesses such as anemia and cancer. The scientists discovered that this ageing process is controlled by a protein called CDC42 and that blocking it could restore the properties of young blood stem cells to older ones. At the moment, the research has only been done in mice, but the team is hopeful that one day they'll be able to turn back the clock in human blood stem cells. Scientists at the Cancer Research UK Cambridge Research Institute have developed a simple blood test that could monitor the genetic changes in cancer as it grows and evolves within the body, publishing their results in Science Translational Medicine. By analysing circulating tumour DNA, tiny fragments of DNA shed from cancer cells as they die, the researchers, led by Drs Nitzan Rosenfeld and James Brenton, showed that the test could be used to monitor the progress of cancer in response to treatment on a genetic level, including picking up new gene faults not present in the original tumour. Technology like this could prove very important as doctors move towards tailoring treatment according to the genetic makeup of an individual's tumour. And if you want to find out more about any of these stories, the references are all on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com slash genetics.
Still to come, we'll be answering your genetics questions, including finding out whether some people may be more genetically inclined towards a career in outer space. Now, as we heard earlier, some researchers are using mouse models to unravel the biological mysteries underlying neurodegenerative diseases. But Kevin Egan, Associate Professor of Stem Cell and Regenerative Biology at Harvard University, is using a different approach, studying stem cells. But these aren't any old stem cells. These are induced pluripotent stem cells, created by taking a normal adult cell and winding its biological clock back to create a stem cell. I caught up with Kevin at the recent Genetic Society Spring Meeting and asked him to explain a bit more about these remarkable cells and what you can do with them. It's sort of like rebooting the identity of a cell. What people discovered, and when I say people, really, it's an interesting scientist in Japan named Shinya Yamanaka. He discovered that if you take a skin cell and you force it to express a small group of genes that are at the heart of what make an embryonic stem cell an embryonic stem cell, you can convert those simple and lowly skin cells into the equivalent of an embryonic stem cell. And then we can use those uh, induced pluripotent stem cells to make all the different cell types in the body. And they're remarkable because they're sort of supercharged stem cells. Um, They can grow forever in the tissue culture dish in the laboratory, and they have the capacity to make all the different cell types in the body. This sounds absolutely incredible, almost the stuff of science fiction. You can turn cells into any sort of cells you want. Um, What are some of the applications of this sort of technology? Well, as I implied earlier, um, I I would say that the application that people think the most about is that we would use these cells to replace those that are damaged in uh, in disease or or through injury. And I think that's a very exciting area of research, which is moving forward rapidly. The idea that we would make insulin-producing cells from these stem cells and maybe administer them to diabetic patients or to produce um, transplants for people who have Parkinson's disease. Um, There's a lot of excitement over that. Now, our own particular interest is actually in motor neuron disease, as it's known here in um, the UK, or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or or Lou Gehrig's disease, as it's known in the United States. And um, in this case, it's a very specific type of nerve cell which is dying, the nerve cells which connect our brains to our musculature, But unfortunately, those cells die all over the body. And so it's difficult to think about transplanting um, all of these different nerve cells and having them reconnect appropriately. And so we take a different kind of approach. Um, We've actually discovered a different sort of utility for those cells. And it's really one that um, tries to leverage or take advantage of these remarkable new developments in human genetics that are unfolding today. And that is that instead of making um, the cells which are lost in the disease to put them back, we're using them to understand why it is that they get sick in the first place and to try to stop them from getting sick or uh, prevent the disease from progressing in people that, that, that have the disease. And really what we've discovered is that even though people with motor neuron disease may not um, be outwardly sick until maybe they're in their 40s, 50s, 60s, um, there's probably something in many cases which is wrong with their so-called motor neurons from the very beginning. And we've been able to get some insight into those differences now, and, um, and we think that there will be a good opportunity for developing new drugs to stop the disease. 
Do you think there might also be ways to identify people who would be at risk of developing this disease too? Yes, absolutely. So this is one thing that um, is interesting about motor neuron disease is that only a fraction of, uh, of people who walk into the clinic with this disorder um, really are familiar with it because it's in their family. And so one thing we're trying to discover is in those people um, that don't have a clear familial history, is there some more complicated genetic makeup of them which that makes them more susceptible to disease? And by making their uh, motor nerve cells and comparing them to uh, individuals which um, have more clearly inherited forms, we're starting to get some insight into that. And in fact, it does seem that at least some people with motor neuron disease have what I would call unappreciated heritability. That is to say that um, the, there are disease genes running within them and they didn't necessarily appreciate it. And you mentioned that there may be approaches for new treatments. Um, what's, what's in the pipeline? One important discovery that, that we've made using this type of system, is that, uh, which is quite surprising, is that other cell types in the nervous system um, begin to attack the motor neurons in this disease. Um, that is to say that the problems that are going wrong in the disease aren't only limited to the nerve cells themselves, but that other cells in the nervous system that are usually supportive of motor neurons seem to turn on them and attack them. And we and others have been, over the last couple of years, very focused on the pathways which seem to be involved in this sort of motor neuron uh, murder, this sort of terrorism against motor neurons in the, in, in the nervous system. And we've been able to identify um, several compounds which seem to interrupt this toxic effect and um, are at least showing some promise in animal models now. And so um, I still think I'd caution that this is a ways from, um, from clinical trials, um, but um, I think it's another new uh, drug target which hasn't been appreciated for this disease that, that surely is going to be uh, interrogated. And in general, I would say, although motor neuron disease is devastating, um, as, as all too many diseases are, and although it's a disease that for the time being there aren't promising therapies, um, there are quite a lot of uh, exciting developments in, um, in clinical development for motor neuron disease today. And so I think there is a, a great deal of hope for patients for the future. That was Kevin Egan from the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. Still to come, we're following the yellow brick road to find Tin Man, our gene of the month. But now it's time to answer your burning genetics questions with Dr Frank Jiggins from the University of Cambridge's Department of Genetics. Our first question is from Wes, who asks, can we breed mosquitoes that don't carry diseases like malaria? Certainly, it's actually quite straightforward to breed a mosquito that can't transmit malaria. So if you go to natural populations, you find a mixture of mosquitoes in the same population, some of which are very good at transmitting, say, malaria or dengue fever, and others of which are much more resistant and can't transmit these diseases. So it's quite straightforward to bring them into the laboratory and you can breed from the individuals which are resistant to these diseases and you end up with a population of mosquitoes that can't transmit the disease. So yes, so people have done it and it works. Next, Ian Munya on Twitter asked, are there genes that make people better suited to become astronauts? Certainly astronauts suffer from all sorts of health problems and most medical conditions have some genetic component 
And so there's genetic variation amongst individuals as to how likely they are to develop these conditions. So at least in theory, you should be able to predict which individuals are likely to develop these conditions, and they'd make the better astronauts. So, for example, one of the problems is the effects of low gravity, which can result in muscle wasting and the reduced bone density. And we know from people on Earth that there's a lot of genetic variation in these traits. So think about 20 genetic variants have been identified that affect bone density. So you could maybe pick individuals which had the better genetic variants, and maybe they'd be less likely to develop these conditions. Another um, problem which an astronaut might develop is um, space adaptation syndrome, which is a type of motion sickness. So this generally only affects about half of astronauts. So it's possible that maybe there's a genetic component there, and if we could identify it, we might be able to predict those astronauts which would develop this problem. That was Dr Frank Jiggins from the University of Cambridge, and thanks to Naked Scientist Louise Anthony for tracking down those answers. If you've got any burning questions about genes, DNA and genetics that you'd like us to answer, just email them to genetics at thenakedscientist.com, tweet us at Naked Genetics, or post on our Facebook page and we'll do our best to answer them. And finally, our gene of the month is the hollow-sounding Tin Man, whimsically named after the character in The Wizard of Oz, who's uh, rather lacking in the heart department. Tin Man was first discovered in the late 1980s by Dr Rolf Bodmer, who discovered a gene that was particularly active in the tiny dorsal vessels of fruit flies. That's the insect equivalent of a heart. Unfortunate fruit fly embryos with a faulty version of the gene lack a dorsal vessel and obviously don't get very far in life. Over the following years, researchers discovered the mammalian version of the gene, which was given the rather less whimsical name of NKX2-5. Mice lacking this gene in their heart cells have several problems, including cardiomyopathy, that's problems with the heart muscle, and problems with keeping a regular heartbeat. These symptoms were familiar to cardiologists dealing with families with a strong history of heart defects and sudden heart attacks at a young age. And in 2004, researchers discovered that these families are afflicted by inherited faults in the human version of Tin Man. Scientists are now taking this discovery forwards by trying to develop drugs that target some of the molecular pathways that Tin Man's involved in, which could help people with heart disease in the future. That's all for now. I'll be back again next month with a walk on the weirder side of genetics, looking at synthetic DNA and experimental evolution. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page, that's nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. Don't forget that every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is available on iTunes or online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast has been brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes. Genetics.